Welcome. This is the weekly Sunday sermon from Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. You can find us at ranchobaptistchurch.org. This week's message by Pastor Jason Swanson, the Gospel of John that you may believe, Feasting on Christ. The original date of this message was the 19th of February, 2023. Well, good morning. Welcome. I am Pastor Jason, the senior pastor here, and it is my privilege to open the Word of God for us Sunday after Sunday. Unless one of my fellow pastors comes in and fills in for me, and I was so blessed last week to have Pastor Shane preach. Amen for God's Word, huh? Well, this morning, please turn with me to John chapter 6. I don't want to waste any time. I want to get right into God's Word. And what has proven to be a very challenging passage of Scripture, two passages of Scripture, going to break up what we see in John chapter 6 here and skip some verses and jump over to, to verse 49. And you will understand why I do that, hopefully, by the time we're done. If you come up and say, Pastor Jason, I still don't get it, then I will know how to fill in the gaps better next week. Thus reads the word of God. I want you to notice that I've entitled this sermon this morning, Feasting on Christ, and I've done it with purpose and intentionality. I want you to wrestle with what Jesus says in this, really, it's a sermon by the Lord Jesus Christ to those who had just feasted like they'd never feasted before. As Jesus Christ did what is unthinkable, changing five loaves and we saw that they weren't loaves at all. Two fish that we saw weren't really fish and miraculously fed some 20 to 25,000 people until they were completely full. And then he walks on the water, but none of them get to see that, just the disciples. And then we pick it up here. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one, and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. 
For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. And he who believes in me will never thirst. And continue on to, to verse 49. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is no greater message, no more important message than the one that we just heard. There is only life found in the Son, in you, Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that if any are here this morning that have not stepped out of death into life, that you would cause that to happen this morning, that you would open their eyes. Lord, I can picture Jesus almost crying as he's saying this to these folks who thought that they knew what real life was who thought that they knew exactly what they needed and desired more than anything to follow you, Lord Jesus, to seek you. And yet when they found you, they missed you. Allow us not to miss you this morning. By the power of your spirit, Lord, would you work through your word. Lord, we, we just sang that, that Satan is the enemy that his desire is that we would perish. Lord, I pray that that is not the case, that you would use your word this morning to save, to save those who do not know you yet as their savior and to continue to save those of us who have placed our faith and confidence in you. Lord, we gather this morning for no other purpose but to glorify you to praise you. May that happen now as your word is preached and proclaimed. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to notice where their mind goes as Jesus continues on in this discussion, this sermon, that the crescendo, the argument, the thesis, the main point is found in verse 35. Everything that he does builds up to that. 
And after that, everything that he says afterwards points back to it to validate it and to verify it. Everything that Jesus wants to get across is this, that he is the bread of life. But notice what their response is as he continues to harp on this point. You see, they bring up Moses, they, they bring up manna, and Jesus circles back around to it. And they ask this question in verse 52, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? They ask this question because Jesus over and over again keeps telling them to do that. Notice what we see again and again and again. Verse 53, in response, he says, well, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat this flesh, of, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and he adds on top of it, now he's not just talking about eat the flesh of the Son of Man, but I, I also want you to drink the blood of this man. And if you don't, you have no life outside of him. And then he says, then he makes it specific, personal, He defines himself now as the son of man, as he says in verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is what? True food and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He couldn't be more specific. He couldn't be more direct. And yet at the same time, he couldn't be more surprising. Who in the world would think that after what happened that Jesus would come forward and he'd say to these guys, hey, yes, eat, eat me. No, just don't eat my flesh. I want you to drink my blood too. And while it's not natural for us to think of this in terms of cannibalism, it would have been very natural for them to. It was was even part of some of their religious belief systems outside of Judaism. What, what a lot of people did during this day was they would sacrifice some sort of animal to a deity, to a small G God. And after they sacrificed that animal, they'd, they'd cut off a little bit of it and then they'd eat it. And they thought by eating it that it somehow passed on the, the power of that deity, deity to them. That's not where our mind goes unless you spent time in the jungles of Papua New Guinea like, like we did. When we first moved into our village of Siawi back in 1998, there was, I'd say, five men that had been cannibals. And they still dressed the part. All they wore were gourds. And I could barely understand anything that they said even after a year or two of language study because their mouths, they, they were, all their speech was garbled. Lots of their teeth were missing. But I had a couple of them sit down with me and and, and give me a story of what it was like before to to eat somebody. And why did you do that? And then somebody had to go back over because I couldn't understand everything that they said in in these stories. But basically what they said is the reason why they did this was to gain superiority over their enemies. You see, they believed that if they could catch one of their enemies when they were battling, bring them back to their particular home, to their village, and then perform cannibalism on them, that that would give them the upper hand on those enemies. Is that what Jesus means? Is that why he keeps circling back around to this? 
No. Christ is giving us a contrast. My, my, my sermon outline this morning is very simplistic, but it is so deep. What Jesus says here is the difference between life and death, between truly living and thinking that you're living but you're not. No doubt all these guys thought that they, that they were truly living. But there is no life outside of Christ. That is Jesus' message. He, he gives us this contrast between a physical bread which perishes and a spiritual bread which lives eternally. And, and this passage has been beating me up all week. It, it beat me up yesterday as I was so tired. But, but my family wanted to go on a hike, so we went to Dripping Springs. And it's sweet right now. I'd highly recommend it because there's all this water and there's a river. I've never seen a river at Dripping Springs. It's in Temecula, like heading to Guanga. Okay. You guys are all going to show up there, so just let me know when you go. So we do this hike, and we do it kind of late, and when we finish, it's getting dark, and, and we're all starving. And this isn't my norm, but you know what sounds so good to me is raising canes. For whatever reason, I just want to go to raising canes. Okay, just between you and me, I'm not a big raising canes fan. I, I tend to go more for Chick-fil-A, but we can debate all about that later. We actually tried to go, I got talked out of it and we tried to go to In-N-Out, but the line was too long, so I'm giving you the whole story now. We go to Raising Cane's, and I'm reflecting on just how hungry I am and how nothing really sounded as good as Raising Cane's. I'm sorry, a double-double wasn't doing it for me. And that's all that I wanted. That's all I could think about. And man, when I sunk my teeth into it, it was so, so good. That's the picture Jesus is painting. But it's not about food, it's about him. Do I love him like that? Do I desire him like that? That that everything else fades away. And all I want is to feast on my Christ, my Savior, my Lord. This morning, we're going to see Jesus contrasting this feasting on two kinds of bread, and I want us all to consider what is your main staple? What is the bread that you are eating over and over and over again? Is it him? Or is it something else that you think is, is worth it? But when it's stripped away, you, what you will find is that that really is the perishing bread, that it's not helping you spiritually. It's not spurring you on. It's not making you more into Christ. Actually, what it's doing is it's leading you astray. So where does Jesus begin? He begins with the perishing bread. I want us to turn to Isaiah. I I, I skipped this part in the first service. This is one of the blessings of you guys being in the second service. Isaiah chapter 55, I want us to understand that this isn't a new concept. That Jesus isn't just coming up with this out of the blue. No, this is how the Old Testament believers were supposed to live as well. This is something that should be on the forefront of all of our minds. And notice the terminology. I would think that as Jesus said what he said, that that these guys, if, if they were indeed Jewish, that they would think back to Isaiah 55. It's hard not to see 
the similarities. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, this is grace. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Man, why am I so emotional? Why do you spend money for what is not bread? It's Scott's fault. He's got me thinking about the Siawis. You have nothing but Jesus. And your wages for what does not satisfy. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercies shown to David. That is the heartbeat of our God. That is the heartbeat of Jesus Christ. That is what is behind what we see in John chapter 6. Take take that as the background for then what we see happening here. You see, what happens is, remember, they were going to make Jesus into the king. They were going to force him to do that. So what does Jesus do? He sends his disciples, puts them on a boat and sends them across. They're kind of at the end of the lake, so it's quicker if you can just catch a little shuttle from point A to point B. Otherwise, you're taking a 10-mile hike. So he sends them. And then it's the next day. The crowd knows what Jesus did. So they are expecting Jesus to be there. They go right, they're, they're right where they were, where Jesus did this miraculous thing, gave them all this food, And they search for him, but they cannot find him. And what they do discover are a whole bunch of new boats. And commentators are all over the place on on how these boats arrived. Did they they come because of the storm that Pastor Shane walked us through last week? That they had no choice, and so they ended up coming to this particular place. Could be. Or it could be that they were... Money mongers looking for an opportunity and they had heard that so many people were were at this particular location. And so they come with the idea that they're going to run almost like a, a river taxi. Which if you've been in a place like this, you recognize how important it is. Are, are you kidding? Pay a little money so you don't have to walk 10 hours? Yes, I'll do that. Whatever the case is, there's an opportunity for them to go from point A to point B much quicker than it would be if you had to walk all that way. So what do they do? They figure, okay, he must have gone to where his disciples are. And so they jump in boats, and all of this is searching for Jesus. This is a good thing. It's a good thing unless your motivation is off. It's a good thing for you to come to church unless you think coming to church is what's going to save you. It's a good thing for you to love your family unless you think loving your family is going to save you. It's not. They might have all the the right ideas behind seeking Jesus, but when you pull it away and you look into their hearts, as we're going to see, they were going after Jesus for all the wrong reasons. We can tell this by the question they posed to Jesus. It just doesn't seem to make sense, right? Rabbi, when did you get here? That isn't what they want to know. What they want to know is, how did you get here? I wonder if this is kind of tongue-in-cheek. Rabbi, when when did you get here? Tell us. Did did you, you know? 
on the water? I heard some kids saying that this morning. Did you? Man, because if you did, that would just be so amazing. Wow. I wonder what else you could do for me. Yeah, then we can make you king. No, they're asking the wrong question. Not how could you do what you did yesterday. Not where did this power come from. Not again, who are you saying that you are? But really, what can you do for me? That's the motivation. And notice Jesus' response as as his response is so often. He doesn't answer their question. He doesn't tell them when he got there. Instead, he drills right down into the motives of their hearts. And he says, hey, you guys aren't coming after me, seeking me, trying to find me for the right reasons. The only reason why you're coming after me is because you ate of the loaves and you were filled. This this doesn't make sense even from a Jewish perspective. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that what? That Jews seek after what? Signs. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But Paul says, but what do we do? We preach the gospel. And that gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that he died, that in three days he was risen from the dead for sinners such as me and you, that glorious gospel It is a stumbling block to the Jews and it is foolishness to the Gentiles. That's what they should be thinking through their grid. Oh man, he's proving something to us. He's proving who he is. This is indeed the Messiah, but you don't get any of that. Instead, all they're thinking about is themselves. I think even in more particular, they're thinking about their bellies. I don't know if they're getting hungry yet. Maybe not. But they're thinking in some way that, man, what what else can he do? We're going to see it as it continues, as he continues on talking with them. That what they really wanted was Jesus to do something else. But they're very specific in what they want Jesus to do. Do you get it? Do you see it? They're not, hey, calm the storm. No. They bring up manna. They bring up Moses. What they want him to do is what he did yesterday, but they want him to do it for an extended period of time. Maybe they want him to do it for the rest of their lives. There was this miscue, this misunderstanding that permeated a lot of Jewish thought back then. I don't know if it's still around now, but the belief is that as we've even seen that this prophet would come much like Moses and the power of Moses Well, some took that to mean that that this Messiah, when he came, he was going to bring manna from heaven. And I wonder if they misconstrued all of this and they thought what it meant was, oh man, we are going to get a free meal for the rest of our lives. Imagine how tempting that would be. Free meals at, you name it, Chick-fil-A for the rest of your life. Would that be an easy thing for you to get off focus on? Do you know in our village in in, in Papua New Guinea in Siawi, they had this crazy story that there were only two people in the world at the beginning. Sound familiar? And when everything was still good, 
And there was no And there wasn't any bad talk, bad sin, is how that would be translated. None of that had happened yet. The, the work that you get from sweating hadn't even arrived yet. That's how they would say it. Life was easy. All you had to do was think of a particular food that you wanted and that tree would zip, zip, come up to you and hand that to you. So you thought of whatever kind of banana you wanted and that banana tree would come, arrive to you and extend to you that. Whatever you wanted. Perhaps that was their perspective. But I don't want us to think that we're all that different. As you come here, Sunday after Sunday, what are you expecting? Are, are, are you expecting to, to sing songs that, that in praise, I praise the Lord for the songs that we sing, but are you expecting for just an emotional high? To put whatever worries that, that you had coming in here aside so that you don't think about them for a while. Not so that your eyes would be riveted on Christ. What are you expecting as we open God's word together? Oh, I hope that Pastor Jason says something that, man, I've never, ever heard before. Or are you ready to come and to drink deeply from God's word, whether it's something you've heard before or not? To grow in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? So that you might feast on him. Jesus is letting all of those that gathered there that particular morning know that perishing food does not endure, does not satisfy. I think we all know this in, in practice, but I don't know that, that we actually think about it in reality. We don't generally walk up to a really gross, rotten banana that's all mushy and looks like it, it, it should have been thrown away a couple weeks ago and run to it and just open it up and dig right in. We, we don't know what we'd find in that banana. And so we stay away from it. In Papua New Guinea, whenever we'd go on break, we'd, we'd go to our base. And there they had wonderful things like refrigerators that had nonstop chocolate milk and soda. So we told the kids, hey, you guys can't go crazy on soda, but chocolate milks, hey, as many as you want, go for it. We're only here for two weeks. And there were these small little chocolate milks with a little straw on top, right? They came from Indonesia. So somehow they packaged them so that they didn't have to be refrigerated. But then they'd stick them in the fridge, and they were so sweet. And I, I'd probably have more marks on my name than, than all the kids did together. And I remember downing some of these one day. And as I'm drinking another one that I just put the straw in. I'm drinking and, and all of a sudden some warm stuff starts going down my throat. And I'm like, wait. And it's thick. And the more that I swallow, the more grossed out I'm getting. And I don't really want to look, but I do anyways. And I take that little box and I hold it out here and I lift up the straw, but I hold on to it, you know, like you can do. And it's totally not brown like chocolate milk. Guess what color it was? a gross, as much as you could imagine, greenish color. That's the worst stuff I've ever tasted. Like to this day, I, I didn't want to go back and drink any more chocolate milk. I'm telling the kids, no, you guys can't go back there. 
tell me, could there be something in your life that you're drinking, that you're eating, so to speak, spiritually, that you don't even know that it's green and gross, that's absolutely not good for you, that will not satisfy you? Are you settling here for something right here and now that Jesus would tell you, man, that is missing out? Think about Solomon in Ecclesiastes. What what does he say? Man, I kept nothing from me. Anything that I wanted, I devoured. And after I dedicated myself to that, and I, and I, and I, I ate it all, I lived it all, I did it all. What does he say? In the end, it was vanity. It was chasing after the wind. Jesus is saying true fulfillment comes only through me. Only through me. What are you settling for that is less? That you don't even possibly recognize that you're settling for. Think about who's speaking to them. Think about what Jesus just did, and yet what did they do? They go back. They go back and they say, okay, well, show us a sign. Well, now we'll talk about signs. You know, I would love to to be able to hear in person George Whitfield preach. I'd love to hear Jonathan Edwards preach. Are you kidding me? I'd I'd love to hear John Owens or Baxter or Bunyan or some of those great Puritans who preach just like they're just putting their heart right out there for you. I I know it. I've, I've listened to some of them, but it's not the same to hear somebody in person. You know, as great as they are, they do not hold a candle to who was preaching to these guys. And yet they miss it. How important is Jesus Christ to you? When I say your favorite preacher, who do you immediately go to? This has been so convicting to me. I don't go to Jesus. I go to, you fill in the blank. How important is Jesus Christ to you? How do you feast on Jesus? Stop drinking the bread the green, gross milk. And feast on Jesus. Spend time with him each day in prayer. Talking to him. Pouring your heart out to him. Spend time in the word of God, listening to him. You know, as Jesus, do you remember this? As Jesus wraps up his his sermon on the mount in Matthew chapter 7. It's so glorious after this wonderful sermon that he's preached in 5, 6, and 7. As he wraps up everything. It says that they were amazed at Jesus' teaching because he was teaching as one with authority, not like the scribes. You see, the scribes had tons of knowledge, tons of understanding, but they had no authority. Why? Because they missed it. They didn't have a relationship with God. Do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? What are you settling for? That's where Jesus goes first. To try to pull their hearts, to try to prepare really their minds and their hearts for what he's going to say next. As we see him now, right after that, in verses 28 to 35, he then gets into the fact that he indeed is, and he culminates it with 35, I'm the bread of life. Notice they misconstrue again what he says. 
as he tells them that, that you need to not live for the wrong thing. And they say, well, what are those works that we need to do? Again, they think it's about them and what they can do. And Jesus says, it's not about your works at all. It's about believing in me. And then what do they do? They point him to Jesus. It's amazing that they take him back. Or I'm sorry, they point them back, point him back to Moses. Isn't it amazing that what he had just done for them being so wonderful, so miraculous, so surprising, and yet within one day, now they're thinking of Moses. Are you like that sometimes? Sometimes as God answers a prayer for me in just the most amazing way, by the end of the night, I'm already throwing out another prayer. I've already got my mind away from that and what God has done. How often, a week or two after God answers a prayer, are you still praising and thanking him in prayer for what he did last week? This has been so convicting for me as I spent time in this. What's even crazier is to understand what they're pointing back to. If, if we had time, I'd, I'd love, and maybe at some point we'll go through Exodus, but then I'd have to preach Genesis first, so, so we're talking a long time. But, but what he's pointing to in, in Exodus is Exodus chapter 16. But before we look at Exodus chapter 16, we have to look at 15 and 14. And we have to be reminded that, that Yahweh had just rescued the nation of Israel from Egypt. And he just miraculously parted the Red Sea. And not just parted the Red Sea, but then destroyed Pharaoh and his army. And then in chapter, that's 14, chapter 15, do you know what they do? They sing songs of praise to God. Why? Oh, because you destroyed Pharaoh. And they all took a big gigantic bath and died. Right? We, we know the song. And then from there, do you know what happens? They start to get real hungry and thirsty. And they've been in the wilderness for a long time with nothing to drink, nothing to eat. They start complaining. And then they find, well, it looks like a lake. That must be great. And then we find out, no, it's Mara. We find out it's bitter. They can't drink from it. And they complain, but grace upon grace, what does God do? He says, Moses, take, take that stick, throw it in the, in the water, and then what does it do? It miraculously turns into water they can drink. They go on from there, and they go to the next place. And there, there's just tons of places to drink water. And there's figs to eat. And so life is good right there. And then we get to 16. Then you get to Exodus 16. And you know what happens? They come to Moses and Aaron and they say, what is up? Oh, we understand now. You brought us here so that you would kill us of hunger. We're all going to die of starvation because we have nothing to eat. Oh, if we would have just stayed in slavery in Egypt where we had baskets full of meat. That's what they're pointing to. They don't even recognize what they're pointing to is their own sinful depravity of their great-grandma and grandpas back in Egypt, spinning on the grace of God continually over and over and over again and missing what God is doing. And now what are they doing? They're doing the same exact thing. And yet they point to Moses and, and they say, well, look what God did. 
And actually, they don't even say that, right? The emphasis is much more on Moses. Jesus has to correct them and say, hey, it, it wasn't Moses that did this. It was God that did this through Moses. Again, you're flipping things upside down. And that is so much what we generally do. But notice what Jesus says in 35. Again, this is the the central point of what he's making. This is the thesis. This is the argument. He says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Two things, he who comes to me and he who believes in me. Comes to me, that, that could be speaking of repentance. Comes to me, turns from sin and doing things your own way and comes to me just as we saw in Isaiah 55. You come with nothing, but you come. And then what do you do? Then you believe. That's how we know that this is not talking about eating Jesus literally. This is all a picture of pointing to the fact that we must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We must repent. And what happens if we come to Jesus? What happens if we believe in Jesus? And this is what is oh so sweet. It's even sweeter when you compare it to what they just did the day before. Jesus says that you will never thirst again. He's letting us all know that everything else outside of Jesus Christ will not, no not, never satisfy us. But that what Jesus Christ offers is that which can satisfy us for all of eternity. Maybe we could think of it this way. We're so prone to keep chasing the next thing, are we not? You learn how to play golf, and then what do you do? You keep trying to get a better and better score. You learn how to surf. What, what, what am I always chasing after? The better, better wave with warmer, warmer water and less and less people. Doesn't happen here too often. You fill in the blank as to what you keep chasing after. The better restaurant. Do, do you recognize that it doesn't end? You'll never be satisfied. You'll just keep going and going and going. We, we see it in, in professional sports. The only way for us to truly be satisfied is in Christ and Christ alone. That's what Jesus is saying. Come to me and you will not hunger. Eat from me and you'll never be hungry again. And what Jesus is offering is eternal Notice as he goes on and we get to, to verse 49, he's doing this comparison between himself and manna. And he lets us know also clearly that he offers what manna truly could not, what Moses truly could not, that as great as that miracle was and how it occurred for so long. Remember, this is 40 years that the Israelites knew that God was going to provide for them. Honestly, whether they were faithful or not, he provided for them. We saw over and over again, if you spent time in Exodus, that they do not obey. Even at the beginning, they, they try to stash a whole bunch extra in their home. And it gets full of maggots. It's just the way that we are. We need God's wonderful grace. 
And so when you get to verse 49, you understand what Jesus now, why he goes back to the manna illustration. Because as wonderful as that was, it didn't keep them from dying. All of their forefathers, their grandparents, their great-grandparents, they're all dead. And what is Jesus' point? That's not, that's not the manna that you need. That's not the bread that you need. The bread that you need is right here. In fact, I, I believe in the Greek that, that, that this, in verse 50 in the beginning, at least in my New American Standard, it's emphasizing something in particular. It's demonstrative. It's, it's, it's pointing to Jesus Christ. He's pointing to himself. He's saying, not that, but this, hear me. Look at me. I am the bread of life. You don't want manna because you will still end up dying in your sins. What you need is you need to eat from me. You need to find your everything in me. And this is the bread which has come down out of heaven. It is me. I am that bread. And then he lets us know that he will even give his life, which is his flesh, for the world. Notice manna was only for really the Israelites and a couple of the Egyptians that followed along. That's not God's heartbeat. Talk to Scott about it. All the Africans that are being saved by God's wonderful grace. God's heartbeat is for the whole world. Christ is building his church and it will include folks from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group. That, that's Jesus' heart. That's what he's exposing to us all right here. And then we see the way that they respond again. They miss it. Oh man, are we really supposed to eat from him? And they don't get it. What's even crazier is Jesus doesn't let them get it. He could have just said, no, I'm not talking about my flesh. Wake up. Which he could have done a, as well with, with Nicodemus, right? We, we see so many similarities. As Jesus talks to Nicodemus, Nicodemus takes it literally. Well, how am I supposed to jump back in my mom's belly and be born again? Jesus doesn't say, duh. Of course, that's not what I'm talking about. What does he do with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman? And if you knew who it was that was talking to, you would have asked him for living water and he'd give it to you. And she's like, what? You don't have a bucket? That's the way that we tend to think. That's how they miss Jesus. Don't you miss Jesus either. Recognize what Jesus is saying. He's saying, come to me. Believe in me. Eat of me. What does he mean? He means believe on me. We see that in verse 35. That sets the table for us. That's why context is so important. You let scripture determine what scripture means through context. Jesus has already made it clear to us that when he says the bread of life and how we can never thirst or never hunger, it is through believing in him coming to him. So we let that interpret what he means here. He's not talking about even communion. Communion hasn't started yet. And if we attach communion to this, then we'd be saying any of you that hasn't taken communion, you, you can't have eternal life. Because he's saying that it's through this that you gain eternal life. Do you gain eternal life through communion? Well, if you think so, we need to talk. That, that is not what scripture teaches. 
Even the fact that communion turns into the physical body of Christ, that's not what this is teaching. Although some would come to this and they'd say, oh, that's how we believe in transubstantiation. No, that's, that's a wrong interpretation of the scripture. Look at verses 53 to 56. This is so challenging for us. As they don't get it, then Jesus ramps it up even more. And he says, okay, now I'm not just talking about my flesh. I'm talking about my blood too. I want you to drink that as well to thoroughly confuse them. Because they didn't have ears to hear. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. There's nothing you can do to save yourself. There's nothing you can do, and listen to me here, there's nothing you can do to satisfy all those desires and longings in your heart. A bigger house, a nicer car. Satisfaction comes through a right relationship with God that only happens through Jesus Christ. Verse 54, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Many other times throughout this passage we see future tense. He will, he will, he will. If you believe, then you will receive eternal life. Here this is in the present. And I believe it's in the present because Jesus isn't just talking about when you trust in him as Savior at the moment of salvation. He's saying, yes, then by all means, feast on Jesus. Recognize there's no other meal that you can partake in that will give you eternal life than Jesus Christ. At the moment of salvation, that better be what you believe in and only in him or you will not be saved. But that isn't what this is talking about. This is talking about after we're saved. This is talking about a present reality that you and I must keep eating his flesh and drinking his blood. Because his flesh is true food and his blood is true drink. It's why he then says, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me. It doesn't mean that by doing this, that you are then saved, but this is a reflection that you are truly saved, just as the book of James talks about. The question for us all is, are you abiding in Christ? Are you spending time with Jesus? Is he your all in all? You know, without Jesus, there is existence. I believe that all these folks were living in existence. You're kind of like, duh. But there's no life. Existence isn't the same thing as life. And until we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior, we don't know what life is. It is at that point that we are given eternal life. At the moment of salvation, that's what Jesus is talking about. I want you to try going without lunch today and then dinner tonight and tomorrow. And as your stomach churns and gurgles and everybody looks at you, still don't eat. 
And as that pain comes to your stomach and as it begins speaking to you about your hunger, consider this. Do I want Christ that much? Do I eat, live, and breathe for him? That's what Jesus is getting at. He's not saying that food isn't important. He just did a miracle that showed how much he has compassion upon the masses. What he's saying is don't flip-flop those and make food too important. Make me too important so that everything that you do is about me and all that you do is about me. Do I want Christ that much? Do I absolutely have to have Christ each day? Want me to give you a barometer? A temperature to, for you to put in your mouth? A thermometer, sorry, to figure out if, how you're doing, if you're perhaps sickly? Can you go a week without spending time in the Word of God? As insane as it is, as I just said, hey, don't eat today, don't eat tomorrow, don't eat for an entire week. Would you not eat from the word of God? Would you not kiss the word of God for an entire week? How about praying? Would you miss out praying for an entire week? Would you let that just go? Why? Oh, because you're so busy. I get it. I'm busy too. And, and, and I'm not preaching to you. I'm preaching more to me. These are things that the Lord just keeps pinpointing at me all week long. And I don't want your words, Jason. I want your heart. Stop saying the same prayer every meal. What are you communicating to your kids? Is this a relationship or is this rote memory? We know from this that believing is the same thing as eating. Believing is the same thing as drinking. Never tasting death is the same thing as gaining eternal life. Or I'm sorry, (laughs) never being hungry again is the same thing as gaining eternal life. Never needing to drink again is the same thing as gaining eternal life. That's what Jesus means. Let me wrap it up like this. There's only two kinds of people in this world. There are those who know really the true satisfaction and the filling and sense of fulfillment that comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ that have, that have tasted, they've already seen, they've already come, they know. That doesn't mean that your entire life with Christ is just this wonderful peak going up the entire time and you're just like, yes, I love Jesus every day. I love the word every day. And even in that, that there's maturity levels. Some, have been saved, some of us have been saved for a long time. Some of you have only been saved for a couple years. But is there that understanding that your soul was empty before and now it is full? That's the first group of people. The other group of people are those that sought after Jesus but never found him. These are the ones who never come to the fullness that is found in Jesus Christ. There's something missing, and what is missing is that contentment, that satisfaction that can only be found in Jesus Christ and him alone. The question is, which one are you? 
Are you satisfied with him? And if you have not trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, please talk to one of us, one of the pastors, one of the elders. We would love to spend time with you. And what is oh so cool about God's amazing grace? You see it in Exodus to the nation of Israel over and over again. You see it in this account with Jesus Christ. He doesn't just push them all aside, say, I don't have time for you. Even though he knows their hearts, even though he knows that they're not going to turn to him. You know what we're going to see later on, really soon? We're going to see that they actually say, man, what you're saying is tough. I'm out. We don't know how many. But God's grace is sufficient, is it not? Okay, let me, let me land this plane with prayer. Uh, and the brads can come up. Gracious Heavenly Father, you are so good. What, what can we say except for thank you? What, we, what can we do except for live for you? Lord, I pray that uh, these just wouldn't be words on a page. That this just wouldn't be a, a, an I am statement from Jesus where he has seven others or six others. And that we miss you. Lord, help us to feast on you. And wherever we are right now, Lord, may you keep us from being satisfied with where you have us. But may you grow in us a hunger for you. It gets greater and greater to receive the, so that you receive the glory that you so richly deserve. Send us from here to be your lights so that others might come and feast on you, that you would continue to build your church. And for your namesake, that more and more would join us forever with you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.